And here we go, another episode of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral podcast. Thrilled to welcome Tamal Dodge to the show. We'll get to the conversation very, very soon. Just a quick intro here. Tamal Dodge is owner of Yoga Salt in Los Angeles, Yoga Salt Wilmington, very well-known yoga studio here in LA, and now, of course, in Wilmington, North Carolina. He has a book coming out that he wrote with his wife, a recipe book, but I guess it's more than a, a yoga recipe book. It's also about yoga philosophy. It's called The Yoga Plate. It hits Amazon, Barnes & Noble, pretty much every bookseller out there on September 24th. And just on a personal level, I was just thrilled to talk to Tamal. Um, I think over the next few weeks, this show is actually going to have a more heavily yoga-themed presence because I, I do have like three or four yoga teachers that are lined up. And it was just awesome to get to sit down and talk to Tamal. I, I remember about four or five years ago, I was interested in going through a teacher training program. A lot of my teachers were over at Yoga Works, but one of my friends suggested I take Tamal's class. And I'll never forget that first time taking his class. He, you know, he has a knowledge of the physical asanas. I love that he's a musician and a singer, and he typically ends the classes singing a song during Shavasana, and he actually ends this show singing a song, so definitely stay tuned for that. But I respected the fact that he really embraces the spiritual internal aspects of the practice. You know, a lot of times, especially now in this day and age, when people think of yoga, they think of the physical postures. And I think the world we live in now, technology, Instagram, is drawing the focus to the physical aspects of the practice. And now, of course, we all want to be strong. This world is very challenging. It certainly helps to have physically capable and strong bodies. But I think now more than ever, we need quiet time. We need alone time. We need solitude. We are, I believe, losing ourselves, losing the capabilities to talk and communicate and sit still with ourselves, with the good, with the bad. And Tamal's class really is emblematic of all of those elements of yoga. He has a strong class, physically speaking, but he also talks, makes sure he devotes a good 15, 20 minutes to the end of class, to more of the in postures, talking about the spirituality of the practice and how important it is to embrace that aspect of yoga. He sings a song at the end of class. I, I was just taking that class, blew me away, inspired me to go through a teacher training with him. And I'm so glad I did, because if you come to my class, you will definitely sense some of those Tamal elements in my class. And, you know, I've said it before, I've had Calvin on the show, I've had Vetus on the show, Sean Gray on my show, and all of these teachers are teachers that I've gone to regularly in the past, and they all sort of become a part of the way that I teach. And Tamal is no different after spending about six to eight weeks with him. Actually, I think it was 10 weeks with him throughout a teacher training. I really grew a huge level of respect for the way he lives his life, 
the way he teaches yoga, the way he wants to bring meditation and the spiritual aspects of yoga to more and more people every single day. So I was obviously just thrilled that I got to sit down with him and talk about yoga, his book, his upbringing, a lot of philosophy talk. And the reality is, is that a lot of us often don't even think about the internal and the philosophical aspects of yoga. And there is a depth to the practice that I think is getting forgotten. It's getting lost. So I think this conversation with Tamal is a good reminder that it's really important to, you know, again, whether it's through yoga, through maybe religion, through meditation, through walks, just to quiet the mind, turn off technology and connect with your thoughts, be it good thoughts, bad thoughts, because I think we are typically nowadays running away from what's really going on inside of our minds and our bodies. So I was thrilled to sit down and talk to Tamal. Again, you can find him. He's teaching. Now he's actually on the East Coast at Yoga Salt in Wilmington, North Carolina. So he's currently teaching there. But he also has a studio out here in Los Angeles in Culver City on Washington Boulevard, Yoga Salt in Culver City. He has a book coming out called The Yoga Plate. We also talk jiu-jitsu. Apparently, he's the co-owner of a jiu-jitsu studio as well. So it's just an awesome talk. I felt stoked to be able to sit down and get to know him better and just learn more about the philosophical aspects to yoga. If you dig the show, please head on over to iTunes, write a review, share the show with friends. You can support the show directly by visiting my Patreon at patreon.com backslash Eddie Cohn. I appreciate you taking the time, supporting, listening, sharing the show, and I hope you enjoy the conversation that I had with Tamal as much as I did. And I guess that's it. Thank you so much. Again, make sure you stay stick around till the very end because Tamal actually... First time for my show, I've ever had a guest sing a song on the show. So stay tuned for that. At the very end, Tamal sings a, sings a song. But yeah, that's it. Thank you so much for supporting, listening, and being a part of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral podcast. It's my third interview today. Seriously? Yeah. We're going to try having the cats in here today. I don't know how that's going to go. Stoked to be here. It's been a long time in the making. Congratulations on the book. Eddie Cohen's been getting me to come on this, been trying to get me on it for the last six months. Has it been that long? I think so. You're making me sound like a stalker. No, it's because I was in another state, and you're like, dude, when you come back, we right. got to make this happen. And now you have a good reason to talk, because you have a book that's coming out. Book coming out, two studios going co-owner of a jiu-jitsu school, like oh, all kinds of stuff going on. So yeah. talk to me. I mean, I'm congratulations. I'm also like not not um, unhealthfully. Is that a word? Unhealthfully? We'll make it a word. <laughs> Jealous. Because I've been working on a book for the last 18 months. Amazing. You know that? Have I told you? I didn't you? know that. You did not tell me that. Yeah, I haven't really told too many p- people. because um, Fiction I, or? It's an absurd satirical tale of our culture. Yeah. That's all I can say. So it's kind of fiction, but also reality as well. Yes. It's commentary. Yeah, it's commentary. You can yeah. probably tell based on sort of my podcast and my rants on the world. Yeah. that yeah. personality and your views <laughs> on life. Yeah. So I'm probably about, I think I'm like a month or two away from being done. 
Yeah, well, that's so pretty amazing. How, what's, tell me about your book. Book's amazing. It's more than a cookbook. It's talking about... I can't actually hear in these yet. Oh, yeah. you can't? No, I can't. Because uh, we need to actually plug it in. Oh, that'd be great. No, you're fine. You're plugged in. Hello. Now, I, now it's perfect. There we go. Here we are, in business. Yeah. So, yeah, talk, talk to me about the book. But What's it called, by the way? The Yoga Plate. Okay. Yeah. Are we recording right now? We, we've been recording. Oh, amazing. Yeah. It's more than a cookbook. It goes through the reasons why diet, nutrition, and a specific lifestyle is really infused in the yoga system, uh, okay. especially if you start to dive deep into Pantanjali's Eight Sutras. You know, one of the first things is ahimsa, which means creating the least amount of harm as possible. So the book is deeply philosophical. I want to say the first 30, 40 pages um, goes through kind of my background, my wife's background, how we met, but then it starts from there to unfold into the nitty-gritty bits and pieces of uh, how eating a plant-based diet is deeply correlated with um, the path of yoga, but also how to make that more accessible to our society and how they can start incorporating dietary changes if they feel that's um, something they want to do into their own daily life and activities. And after we do all that, it goes into meditation techniques, things that you can do in your home. And then from there, it goes into, you know, things that you need to stock in your pantry, as well as going into how to cook delicious, incredible plant-based recipes from sauces to desserts to entrees, tackling breakfast, tackling every kind of culinary thing you could want. Um, But uh, it's got 108 recipes. The process was intense. I mean, you have to create recipes from scratch and you usually start creating around like 140, 150, and then you whittle it down to 108 and you have to recipe test them, which means you have to make them three to five times yeah. to make sure it keeps turning out. So you're, by the end of it, you're like, I don't really want to cook anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to say that this whole thing came about really quickly. Okay. Um, it actually has to do with Liz Arch. Sure. Yeah. Liz Arch. Uh, my wife was having a lunch with her and Liz Arch was doing a book and they started talking about books and things that they really loved doing. And one thing led to another because my wife's been in, you know, food and the culinary world for a while. She used to have a company called Nourishment Now where all she did was post recipes but also do interviews with um, very influential people in the plant-based community like John Robbins and the list goes on and on. Right. Um, Ronald McDonald. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> hamburger, burglar, all everything we could think of. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, but yeah, so she was doing that for a while, and Liz was just saying, you know, it'd be amazing if you could, you know, you can do a cookbook. And Victoria and them got to talking, and Liz was saying, yeah, I wanted, why don't I uh, hook you up with my agent and see what happens? So my wife pitched an idea to her agent, and the agent loved it so much she took us on as clients. Wow! And then that agent went out and basically pitched our book to very large public publishing houses and sounds true was one of those incredible very large publishing houses that picked it up and you know we're fortunate that they really saw the big picture of what we were trying to do and the vision of what we were trying to do um to my knowledge this is actually the first ever cookbook that sounds true has ever done they're more into i want to say spiritual community and kind of natural path healing community they do like I believe Thich Nhat Hanh and people, they publish those books and things like that. So this will be their first cookbook that they're putting out there. 
um, which they're very excited about. And one of the reasons they loved it so much is that it was a spiritual cookbook and it really right. related to yoga. And it wasn't just like something you find on, you know, every shelf. Right. It's going to stand out. Once we got uh, an agent to actually getting a deal and then putting it out there was probably the span of a year. Wow. That's um, pretty fast. Yeah. And doing all the recipes and putting it out there in about a year. Um, it was exhausting because the first run of recipes that we did, we actually wrote the entire cookbook basically over two and a half months in a summer. Wow. And we're just cooking every day, all day long, sometimes four or five recipes in a day. And then giving all the, the, uh, samples out to our neighbors and our friends. Do you like it? Is it good? Is it, is this shit or is right. this, is it good? Yeah. Um, and so people would be like, Oh, it's delicious. I wish you'd make it again. And then we'd recipe test the ones that everyone loved and keep, uh, pumping them out, making sure there was consistency. And then the process of having editors, man, it's no joke. They, no. they constantly give you feedback, scratch this, add this, then they make changes themselves and see if it's okay with you. And if you don't like it, you got to go rewrite. And, um, there was a lot of back and forth. However, you know, it's a beautiful book. It's hard copy, um, sold everywhere. Every Barnes and Nobles, every bookseller you can imagine. So is, Amazon. It, is it on sale now? Pre-order on Amazon. Okay. Um, but hitting the shelves everywhere, September 24th. It's... I've I've been doing creative things for most of my life. Yeah. I've made records. Yeah. I've been you're a, a musician, you're a DJ, I'm a DJ, I'm teaching. I mean, there's a creative aspect to teaching yoga for sure. This process of writing a book has been by far the most challenging creative pursuit I have ever pursued. Yeah. Because and I'm tell me, I mean, can you relate or oh, Absolutely. I think, you know, out of all the things that I've done um, artistically, playing music, singing, um, all the stuff that I've done, I used to be, I was an art major in college. <laughs> it's one of those things where you keep going back to it. And even now when I got the final copy, I'm like, mm, I wish I could uh, put a little of this or a little sure. of that in there. But I think that's just life in general. Um, as far as just the overall process of going back and forth with editors and, you know, we also photograph the entire book. I'm fortunate enough that my wife's a professional photographer. Um, but I mean, we had to stage everything that we cooked and style it ourselves. You know, the undertaking was a lot, but I think the process now that we've done it once, I feel like we could do it even more efficiently the next time around. Right. Um, and, you know, you learn so much just from uh, having these interactions with a major publisher and things like that and how they operate and their expectations and what you need to do for, to fill those um, expectations. Even though it was a lot of work, I'm having a lot of fun. I mean, we're doing interviews now and yeah. we're at that point where we're just promoting it. We're doing a little book tour all over the East Coast and a little one here on the West Coast. Um, just getting the word out there. Um, we're fortunate, too, that we have so many incredible friends that are, you know, influencers yeah, sure. <laughs> that are uh, going to be blabbing about this. So yeah, I'm just here for the ride right now and uh, seeing how, how the public's going to receive it. We have yet to, you know, really have people yeah. cook from it and in their hands that are in the general public. Right now, it's just been myself, my wife, and people at the publishing house that have been like right. recipe testing. And Well, it's interesting. I was reading, obviously, about you, and I remember reading something about your dad mentioning something to you about 
when in regards to teaching, just being yourself. And I feel as though something that I've really resonated with towards you is you're just who you are and people are either going to like it or not. And you're not going to be performing a show of some sort. And I feel like that attitude has to cross all of the projects that you work on, whether it's the book, whether it's you as a musician. And just talk to me about that in the sense that I'm sure that's been something that you at least at first struggled with, but then how did you sort of come to that realization where, and and based on the things that he probably told you, or you're just, you are who you are and people are going to resonate with that or they're not. And that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I know exactly the story you're talking about. My dad was uh, a monk as a teenager living in India with his spiritual teacher in the early 70s. Um, And at that time, there was a bunch of hippies and things like that that, you know, were diving deep into uh, Eastern meditation and yoga traditions. And at that time in India, there was all these guys that moved from California, from Hawaii, all these hippies that became monks, but they weren't just becoming monks. They were like trying to actually change the way they talked. They tried to change the exteriors, you know? You had guys like who are born in the valley named Kyle, who all of a sudden were talking with like an Indian accent. Right. <laughs> you know, they're, they were trying to change the exteriors, but weren't really doing the work to change the interiors. So one night my dad's standing on the rooftop of this um, castle um, in the holy land of India called Vrindavan. And there's a bunch of these Western guys up there, including my dad and my dad's spiritual teacher. And my dad's spiritual teacher was a Westerner. He had a Western body, but he had done the work inside, you know? He wasn't trying to change the way he talked or anything like that. But he could see my dad was slowly trying to change his exteriors. My dad was changing the way he walked, the way he interacted. And so my dad's spiritual teacher um, was a sannyasi, which is like the most renounced order of life. And you're given something called... um, uh, a dunda or a staff that's like a holy stick that they walk around with. Right. And all of a sudden, my dad's teacher jumps up on the ledge of the castle. And it's like nighttime. There's these like twinkle lights everywhere. And my dad's teacher holds the staff as if it was a microphone going, bright lights, oh baby, now bright lights, bright lights, oh baby, now bright lights. And he starts dancing and kicking and jumping. And all the other Westerner guys are like, what the fuck is going on? Like they didn't know. And he jumps down. He's like, bright lights, oh baby, now bright lights. And then he stops and he goes, don't you know who that is? To my dad. Right. And my dad goes, no, I have no idea who that is. He goes, it's Jerry Lee Lewis, man. <laughs> Jerry Lee Lewis. <laughs> my dad's like, okay. He puts down the stick and he grabs my dad by the head and he looks at him in the eyes and he says, you don't have to change the way you talk, the things that you listen to. You don't have to change your exteriors to be a spiritual person. You can still dress a certain way, talk the way you did before. You just got to change the inside. And see, now that my dad used to tell me that story growing up, and it resonated me as well as many other things that I have experienced, you know, growing growing up in the spiritual environment that I did. Uh, 
that kind of um, made me look at life as a way that it's really all just temporary. You know, my father passed away in such a fantastic spiritual way that inspired me to die that way, which most people go, that's a weird thing to say. Well, what does that mean, that he died in a fantastic way, and that would inspire you to... Yeah, well, I'll have to tell the story. Um, So when I was about 18 years old, my father was going to teach meditation and philosophy up in Northern California. So my brothers and sisters, we all pile into a car and we drive up the coast. Um, About 30 minutes outside of San Francisco, um, my father says, stop the car, and he hops out, and he's rubbing his chest. And we're all like, what's going on? So we hop out of the car. Everyone's asking him, uh, are you all right? My dad's this super even-keeled spiritual person. And he's like, yeah, yeah, everything's okay. Just give me a second. I'm just I'm having a heart attack right now. And I was like, what? He's like, no, just just give me a second. We're like, are you sure? He goes, yeah, yeah, it feels like there's an elephant sitting on my chest. Just give me a second. So we all sit in the car, and everybody's like really freaking out. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. He hops back in the car. He goes, okay, yeah, the heart attack's passed. We're all good. Let's uh, go to the hospital. So we drive into San Francisco. We stop in in San Francisco General Hospital. My dad walks to the front, and he says, hey, I would like to uh, admit myself into this hospital. About 30 minutes ago, I suffered a heart attack. And they're like, you sure you had a heart attack? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they bring him in. They'd run all these tests. The doctor comes in and says, "Uh, I'm sorry, you didn't have a heart attack. I don't know why you think you did, but you didn't. And maybe it was just indigestion or something. Right. My dad was like uh, a very, uh, I want to say clairvoyant, but somebody who knew what was going to happen before it happened, you know? Right. And so he he just said, no, I I had a heart attack, and I'm actually going to have several more while I'm here, and I'm actually going to die in this hospital. You know, and all the kids were there, and we're like, ah. we all start crying, right? Because uh-huh. we're really close with them. And the doctor's like, I don't know why he's saying this, guys. He didn't have a heart attack. We're going to actually discharge him in a minute. And the doctor leaves. And we're all crying because we're like, oh, my God, what he says happens, happens. Right. And so then he starts saying spiritual philosophy that we heard growing up in a yoga ashram with him. He was saying, you know, this is going to be hard. It's going to be painful because we're playing this role of father and children but i want you guys to see this with spiritual eyes not material eyes right i want you to see this that i'm not my body i am the soul that inhabits this body when the body dies the soul will live on and then he started quoting the bhagavad-gita he says the wise neither lament for the living nor for the dead which means that the wise understand that the soul is going to be living whether it's alive and functioning in this body or even when the body dies the soul is going to still be alive and moving on so the wise see things differently. And he goes, I want, to see, I want you guys to really try to see this with spiritual eyes. Right as a doctor walks in and the people are going to discharge him, he has another heart attack. But he's still hooked up to everything. So everybody's trying to help him. Everybody's rushing and it's chaos. They rush him up to the ICU. We all follow suit. We go up there. And then he stabilizes again. And the doctors and nurses are like, oh, my God, he really did have a heart attack before. This guy wasn't lying. He's telling the truth. Yeah. Shit. So he keeps asking for water. And this is clearly a ringing endorsement for the medical field because they had no idea he had a heart attack. <laughs> oh, my God. This yeah. is a mess that happened. No, right? yeah. Okay. So, um, But anyway, yeah, he um, ends up saying that he's thirsty and he wants water. But they say you can't have water in case we need, in case we need to do emergency surgery. Right. You can't have food or water in your system. You can have some ice chips. So they give us a bucket of ice chips. 
and we're standing to the left of him and we're feeding him these ice chips. And this nurse comes in and she just sticks this giant needle in his right arm and he just starts laughing hysterically. And the nurse goes, what's so funny? And he goes, it's just the duality of this material world. On the left, I'm fed these delicious ice chips. That's relief. It's the pleasure. And then I'm stabbed on the right. It's like pleasure, pain, pleasure, pain. That's just how this world is. And she was like, all right, man. <laughs> and she walks out. But then um, the doctors come in and they start talking to him about what's going on. And he starts telling him, well, you know what? No matter what happens, I really, I don't want any, I don't want any narcotics. I want to die pain-free. And I, mean, I want to die with whatever pain I'm going to get. I want right. to die conscious. Right. They're like, you're not, you don't have to die, sir. You're like, you're already hooked up here. You're in the hospital. You're going to be okay. He goes, no, no, no matter what happens, no drugs. I want to die with whatever pain there is, but I want to be conscious. And they're like, oh, man, okay. And um, later that day, he had another heart attack. But this one created something called an aortic dissection, which means his heart basically splits in half. It explodes and tears in half. Right. Everybody dies instantly. They just, they're gone. Yeah. Five minutes pass by, 10 minutes pass by, half an hour passes by, an hour passes by, and you can see with the monitor that his heart, both halves of his heart are still beating. But he's having trouble breathing, so they intubate him and they zip tie his arms down. And we're like, why are you, why are you tying his arms down? They go, well, one, this guy has his heart exploded in half. He's in more pain than you could ever imagine. If you can think about the most sensitive and fragile like organ in your body right it's got to be your heart your most sensitive important organ in your body so they go on top of that he has this tube down his throat and it's literally the most uncomfortable thing that if he's not tied he's going to pull it out everyone does but his hands were relaxed we're like can you just untie him so they go okay but if he pulls it out we're going to do the whole procedure and shove it down his throat again so they take the straps off his arms then he shakes his arms out like oh there you go yeah and he doesn't pull it out and they're like, whoa. And then he looks at us and he starts snapping his finger. He starts going. And he does it for like 30 minutes. We can't figure out what's going on. And we're like, is he neurologically okay? And they're like, yeah, we've asked him questions. And we asked him to squeeze our hand three times if he understands. He's to totally neurologically there. He's just wanting something. After a long period of time passes, my mom's like, oh, I know what he wants. And she bolts out of the room. And she comes back and she brings him a pair of mala beads. Now, it's like, you know, in our culture and especially in Los Angeles and New York and places, you know, people use mala beads more as like a fashion accessory. Sure. They're like, I got my blue malas for my blue lulus or my blue aloes. And right. really, it's a tool for meditation. They're supposed to be taken very seriously. And my dad chanted on his beads every single day. So my mom gives him the beads and he grasps them in his hand and he looks at her like, yes, thank you. And then he holds the beads between his thumb and his middle finger and he raises his arm in the air. And he flashes us a smile, and then he starts meditating bead by bead in his mind. Hmm. And he continues to do that for 18 days, 24 hours straight, deep in meditation. And, you know, I'd take all these, we'd all take shifts with him, and I'd sit there through the night shifts with him, just chanting and meditating and praying next to him. And, um, you know, because he knows he's probably going to be dying soon. Yeah, he knows he's going to leave his body. It's yeah. like, see, the thing about people to understand about yoga, most people think yoga is just this way to get a yoga butt, way to look cool, way to look hot and do this thing or that thing. You know, that's just because when one thing comes from one culture to another, 
especially a culture like ours where it is deeply materialistic, we tend to wash out, bleach out um, the very deep, the very visceral um, aspects of what it's all about. When the message of yoga is, the word yoga doesn't mean to unite with breath. It doesn't mean to unite with body. It doesn't just mean union. It's because our culture has gotten uncomfortable with the word God with a capital G. The real, actual, literal meaning of yoga is to yoke or unite with God. Um, if you read the Bhagavad Gita, that's all they talk about. You know, God saying, if you think of me at the time of death, if you pray to me when you're dying, you will come to me. And that is yoga, he says. And you'll find all these things that are throughout Pondajali's Eight Sutras talking about, you know, the true meaning of yoga is to work on remembering and creating a spiritual relationship with God. And so, you know, my dad uh, spent his whole life practicing yoga, the real, the real deal. Yeah. And he was so deep in meditation and understanding that if he thinks of God and his deepest attachments um, is trying to develop his relationship and love with God, then that's where he's going to go. For instance, a quick detour. I've talked about this in teacher training, but you know why we call Gandhi Mahatma Gandhi. Maha means great and Atma means soul, means great soul, Maha Atma. Uh, when Gandhi was alive, people would call him Mahatma and he didn't like it. He's like, no, 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 no. You can't call me that. Because Gandhi read the Bhagavad Gita every day. Gandhi really understood what yoga was all about. He understood that whatever your greatest attachments are are going to show up at the time of death. That's what you're going to think about. That's what your mind is going to go to. You know, some people, when they're dying, they'll be going, oh, man, I just want to have sex one more time. <laughs> one person is going to be like, I just, I just want to smoke one more cigarette and I'm dying from lung cancer. Ugh. You know, they pass away like that. That's become their greatest attachments. It's become their mental muscle memory is around these sense gratifications. Gandhi knew that the true essence of what yoga is is to create a connection, a spiritual love for God. And so he said, you can't call me a great soul. You can't call me Mahatma. It's not until it is proven that at the time of my assassination, that when I am shot, I raise my hand and I forgive my assassin and I die with the names of God on my lips. Could you ever call me a great soul? Then lo and behold, years later, he gets shot. He falls on the ground. He raises his hand. He forgives the guy who was a fellow Hindu. And then he starts saying, Ram, 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 Ram. And he died. And that's why we call him Mahatma Gandhi today, because he did what a great soul would do. So my dad knew that. And so he was meditating 24 hours a day. And I was 18, you know, so I'm young and I'm sitting in this room one night and I just started crying in the corner and he's chanting on his beads, his arm raised, going bead by bead by bead and he looks over at me, he puts his beads down, he waves, waves me to come over and I just, you know, I'm crying and stuff and he looks at me and he gives me a hug with one arm and I just bawling and crying and he is rubbing me on the head and then he looks at me and I look at him and he picks his beads up again he signals like, come on you know, let's just do this. Yeah. And so I was like, all right. So I wiped my tears away and we just sat there like chanting together, chanting on the beads through the whole night. Two days before he left his body, um, the doctors come in and they say, we want to talk to you. We've flown in specialists from everywhere. No one has ever seen anything like this. Nobody lives with an aortic dissection like this. This is insane. Um, 
we want to attempt a surgery that's never been done. And there is a 3% chance you'll live. We'll have to heavily sedate you to do this. Right. Which I know you don't want. But there's a 3% chance you'll live. Squeeze my hand three times. He never squeezes. They ask over and over and over again. Then they go, okay. So you do realize that if you don't have the surgery, there's a 100% chance you're going to die. But you don't have to have narcotics. You can die clear. Squeeze my hand three times and boom, 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 he squeezes. They ask him it over and over and he confirms that's what he wants. Two days later, he starts to flatline. We're all in the room. He's got his beach clenched. He's got this electric smile on his face. Like, you know, there's people who are happy. And then you see people who are like loaded with joy. That's the expression on his face. And the nurse is pumping on his chest and she can't figure out why he's smiling. You know, nobody ever sees somebody, you know, embracing death with this feeling of I'm going home. You know? Yeah. And um, so, you know, people go, oh man, isn't that painful for you to talk about? And I say, yeah, it is, because I was as close as a child could be with their father. However, parents are supposed to teach you how to live your life, but the greatest lesson a parent could ever show a child is how to properly die. And I felt like that's what he did. So that's why I said in the very beginning that I feel like, you know, everything's temporary. And um, I'm really trying to live my life at this stage. Um, in a way where I can help people realize, one, what yoga is really all about, two, that it's a deeply spiritual path that completely dissolves fear if you let it. Um, I was seeing people in that icy unit when my dad was passing away screaming in fear in the other room, screaming in fear, the scariest sounds you've ever seen. Yeah. And I don't want to see people have to go out that way. And I want people to realize that they need to know that there are things that are completely certain that are pertinent to everybody that is absolutely true. You know how we live in L.A. and everyone's like, Duh, dude, my truth is your truth. Your truth is your truth. Yeah. There's no such thing as absolute truth, which is hysterical to me because you making an absolute statement that there is no absolute truth, that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth is just contradictory. Yeah, completely. You're saying there's an absolute truth that no one has their own truth, that everyone has their own truth and there's no one truth. That's contradictory. But... Um, yeah, I'm thinking a few things, obviously. I just recorded a podcast just a few days ago about this concept of storytelling. Mm-hmm. I don't know if people are telling stories anymore like they used to. Yeah. And I find it ironic that here you are telling the story about your dad. Yeah. And why is that important? Well, I actually think if kids aren't hearing stories, stories a lot, like you tell that story mm. to 20 people, yeah. 20 people are going to imagine it in their brains, yeah. 20 different ways. Yeah. And I think because people stare at their phones all the time, their brain function, I'm going to have a neurologist on the show soon, their brain function doesn't work at its full capacity Mm. and allow the imagination to actually run wild and create the visualizations in their head. So as you're telling the story, I'm thinking about that. What is your, as a yoga teacher, and this is sort of the paradox or the conundrum, sometimes I feel like as a yoga teacher, you can't really say anything to somebody like, I don't think what you're doing is really particularly very good because Mm. maybe that's anti-yoga. So I think that's, I think that's, um, a misunderstanding. Everyone has this conception that, oh, I know what yoga is or what is that or this. And there's a word in even Pandajali's eight sutras, it's satya, truthfulness. 
Truthfulness means being not only honest with yourself, but other people. You know, you can't say, oh, you can't judge people or this thing or that thing. No, what if somebody's doing something really, really wrong? You know, what if you see some guy, you know, um, hurting somebody? You're, gonna, you're not going to go, oh, you know, uh, yoga tells us we can't judge that person or right. tell them that they're doing something wrong. You just get, keep your blinders on. No, I mean, if that was the case, why would Gandhi's tell the British uh, rulers at the time that it was wrong what they're doing to the Indians? Yeah. Why would Martin Luther King try to, you know, tell people you couldn't, you know, abuse African-Americans and segregation was wrong? You look at things that are... There time and time again, there's people who have a clear understanding what satya means and they have the fucking balls to put it out there. When it comes down to people saying, oh, you can't say this or that, yeah, there's certain things that I'm not going to cast judgment or anything on. But if something that's seriously like not cool or not okay right. and it goes against yoga principles, I don't care if I tell people that. You know, do you feel as though you're sort of in an uphill battle, though, because our culture has become so visually based? And that's part of the reason why I responded to you and and took your teacher training because I remember some of the teachers that I was going to, they were like, to me, more concerned about Instagram mm-hmm. and more concerned about the visual. And I just felt like now more than ever, we need, you know, I took Calvin's class like a few weeks ago and it was packed. And I had this talk with him where I'm looking, I'm looking around the room and everybody's there clearly for, you know, more for the physical mm-hmm. essence of yoga which is obviously important. Yeah. But I'm thinking to myself, how many of these people need to actually be going to yoga more for the spiritual inner essence of mm-hmm. the practice? And I feel as though that side of the practice is getting brushed aside. Yeah. I feel that that's the case. I think also people don't understand. It's like, um, I'm not going to pretend that I'm not living in the world. It's There's this con- concept where people go, well, if you really want to be a yogi, you need to, you know, Tomorrow, go to the Himalayas, don on some robes, ditch the world, sell all your shit, tell your wife, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> but they actually call that in the yoga system, Falgu Varagya, which is false renunciation. There's this river. It's a dry riverbed in India. And it's called the Falgu River. The appearance of this riverbed is that it's dry. You dig in the sand And as you stick your hands in the soil, you find water. And what is a metaphor for is people go, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go to India. I'm going to change my clothes. I'm going to live in a cave somewhere. I'm going to become a true yogi and things like that. And yoga, they talk about in depth that you could change all the exteriors that you ever wanted to. And you could have the appearance of being someone renounced. You can have the appearance of being a dry riverbed. But all your material desires, there's a waterfall somewhere still inside of you. And there's moisture and wetness of all those material desires still inside your heart. In yoga, they say the real renunciation is something called yukta viragya. And yukta viragya is you can live in an urban environment. You can live right here in Los Angeles, California and be the most deep spiritual person as long as you're doing the internal work. You can wear your clothes, you can drive your car, you can do that, but do it all in service to God and do it in all service of helping your fellow um, people. Well, and that's, I talk about this a lot on my podcast and with other people, you talk about the internal work and I do think the world is just going towards the external and I'm watching the show Euphoria on HBO where it really feels as though, they even talk about it where it's almost like we have two lives now. 
people are literally creating another life on social media. Yeah, it's your real life, and then there's the life that you appear to be living. And it feels as though people are more interested in curating and paying attention to the life in social media as opposed to the real life. And the only reason that I call out, you know, yoga teachers sometimes and I got frustrated with it because I actually felt they were perpetuating this mm-hmm. process of paying attention and curating more your fake life as opposed mm-hmm. to your real life. And to me, yoga is really about paying as much attention as you can and dealing with the hardships, the tragedies, the good and the bad, yeah. as opposed to avoiding it. It's a natural evolution of being in a material world, wearing a material body where we, you know, think that here I am, I'm Tamal Dodge, I'm a yoga teacher, I own yoga studios, yeah, 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 all these different things. It's not who I really am. It's like when you go into yoga salt, in each yoga salt, LA and on the East Coast, I have this uh, Sanskrit word that's on the wall. It says, Aham Brahmasmi, which means I am spirit, I am soul. Um, that's our true identity. But if you don't know that, even if you're practicing, you know, even if you're teaching, you go and you don't know that, here to enjoy and I'm here to become as famous as I possibly can. I'm here to get as many followers as I possibly can and I get as many people just spouting their praise to me as much as I can, then you know it's bound to happen where it's going to have some kind of negative ramification. It would be wonderful if all the people who were uh, on social media dove really deep into yoga philosophy and did all the hard work. You know, that's the thing about even that book that I'm writing right now, or the book that's coming out, is The Yoga Plate. It, it deals with one of the things that Westerners have the hardest time with, is eating a plant-based diet. You'll notice that when anybody or anything that comes along that becomes actually challenging, it's like my dad growing up in a yoga ashram used to say, to this, to me, say this to me all the time. He used to say, if you're comfortable, you're not progressing. Everybody in our society just wants to be comfortable. And as soon as something comes into our yoga culture that says, actually, you guys, you should eat a plant-based diet, then people start going, you know what? I actually, you know, it says that, but I think it should actually mean this or it should mean that. Or let's not, let's just skip that one. Yeah. You know, all this stuff. You go into the yoga community and people will be saying, oh, you know, if you do chaturanga with your elbows splayed out and your shoulders dipping towards the floor, you're going to injure yourself. And you have to do it this one way where your elbows are in and your shoulders lift. And they go through this whole um, detailed description of how we all need to do the physical postures and everybody is on the same page there. But when it comes to all the other um, points that Pantajali brings up, you know, Pantajali wrote eight sutras and asana is the one that we use. All the other ones... They go, oh, well, all that stuff's up for interpretation. You can twist it, turn it, give anybody whatever kind of spin you like on it. But when I tell people, I go, you know what? If we all agree that you have to do these physical postures, like chaturanga this one way or it's going to cause physical injury, well, I am a firm believer that all the other writings that he has, if you twist and could distort it, chop it up and mess it up, it's going to cause spiritual injury. You need to just present it the way it is. And if you aren't there yet, if you're like, hey, man, I can't even eat a plant-based diet. I'm not there. Tell people. Just be straight up honest. Say, hey, you know what? This is how it's supposed to be. He says you're supposed to eat a plant-based diet, but I'm actually just not there yet. I'm working towards it. And I remember telling you that in the the teacher training. You were talking about eating a plant-based diet and the benefits of it. And I 
I, you didn't judge me for saying no, there's no honesty way is the honesty is so refreshing. And that's part of Panjali eight sutras, satya truthfulness. Yeah. Be truthful, work towards things. I don't, you know, when it comes down to it, if somebody's not ready to eat a plant-based diet, that's fine, but be honest about it. Be honest with yourself. You know, when we created all these stories and these ideas and these different lies that we tell ourselves in the world, it's only going to eat you up. Yeah. Um, and when it comes down to everything else that's in Pondajali's eight sutras, yeah, I know they're, they're challenging. They're uh, difficult. But those challenges are the things that are going to make you progress on such a different level. And if all these Instagram famous people really dove deep into it and really tried to share that with the people that are, you know, watching, yeah. it could make good positive impact. Do you think Instagram is affecting the world as much as I think, or, and it's not even about like comparing or contrasting. And then also sort of, do you think Instagram is like watered down yoga or do you think it's watered down our culture? It's done a couple things to yoga. I think there are some Insta famous te- teachers that are really sophisticated alignment based teachers that can teach a safe class. But then there are people who have no real teaching experience, but they can do pretty yoga. And then they're expected to go teach like a crowd of a hundred people and, Everyone expects them to teach something very safe and very technical, and it, it isn't that way. Because what happens is most of society doesn't know that just because you can do pretty yoga doesn't mean you have an intellectual, solid understanding of how to teach it. Hmm. They confuse the two. So I think that it also becomes uh, a responsibility for people, if they are insta-famous or whatever, to go out there and really do the work so that you teach a safe class, so that you teach real technical yoga. Because otherwise... You don't want to injure your students. You don't want to do things that are unsafe. You know, we don't want to fall in love with our own myth of, I'm great because look at my pretty yoga. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then you go in there, you know, you don't want to be that narcissistic. You want to be like, okay, okay, I've got like 40,000 people following me. Now I'm being asked to teach a room full of 100 people. You know, before I commit to any of that stuff, I better go teach for like a year and a half straight year and a half, two years, teach five classes a week somewhere and just not travel and just focus on grinding this out so that I'm really going to be presenting something that is, you know, safe, clear and digestible for the public. Yeah. Um, and then, it's, it's funny when I teach, I don't get, I mean, I'll certainly give um, some physical cues, but I've, I, to me, when I hear nothing but physical cues, all class, mm-hmm. I'm sort of zone, zone out. Yeah. Yeah. I just mean even transitioning and understanding because it's not even just the physical cues. Transitioning, if you don't clearly understand how to get people from one place to the other, or you don't understand what a neutral position of the hips is, an external rotation of the hips is, and how those things are supposed to correlate with transitioning. Um, And also understanding, like people go, oh, we're going to work to a peak pose. You need to have a certain amount of anatomy under your belt to know how the human body is going to react to certain poses to get them to that peak pose. Yeah. You know, for instance, people want to, oh, we're going to work towards bird of paradise, right? Or this pose. If you don't understand the anatomy of the human body and which poses give you the physical attributes to get to bird of paradise, you're not going to be leading it safely. I've taken so many classes where teachers were just butchering their way to get to what they thought was leading them to a peak pose. And it was nothing remotely in that direction. Also, I think if people aren't, uh, don't have a very solid understanding of spiritual philosophy and things like that. And 
Um, they're trying to present themselves as some kind of uh, spiritual guide or things like that on social media. You really need to go back to the drawing board. You know, it's something like when I was a kid, this is how deeply uh, serious my father was about spiritual life. He would like leave the house sometimes at nine o'clock at night and sometimes he'd come back in like an hour and sometimes he wouldn't come back to like 11 or 12 of the afternoon the next day. You know, he'd go out for 14, 15 hours and he'd come back the next day with his hair wild, huge smile on his face, eyes bloodshot. And we're like, whoa, where did dad go, mom? She's like, he went to go talk to God. And as I got older, I started asking him, you know, more in-depth questions. I was like, what do you do out there? And he goes, I pray my fucking guts out. (laughs) And I go, what do you do? He goes, I go out there and I pray my guts out until I have a 100% undeniable confirmation that God has heard my prayer and that I'm connected with God. Sometimes it happens quick, half hour to an hour. Sometimes it takes 15 hours. But I'm willing to die out there if I don't hear anything. We go on through this life as if it's going to go on forever. And that's the only reason we feel that way in yoga, they say, is because the soul is eternal. That we feel like, well, I'm always going to exist, but this body has an expiration date. There are two things that are 100% certain, like we were talking before, that people are like, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. No, there's things that are absolutely true, regardless of what you think your truth is. One is everybody's born. I've never met anybody that just poofed out of air. (laughs) Everybody's been stuck in the birthing canal, right? Everybody has gone through this birthing experience. And the other truth, everybody's going to die. And so yoga asks you to tackle those deep metaphysical ontological questions of why am I born? Why do we die? Why is there suffering? Why is there so much narcissism in this world like social media? And why are we all so confused about our identity? Who am I? What is my purpose? Why do I exist? Is there a God or is there not a God? I don't want to get ripped off. And we got to just get real about our spiritual life, you know? You know, some people go, oh, tomorrow, you know, you swear that's not very spiritual. Show me one place in anywhere in the Yoga Sutras where it says, thou shall not say a swear word. I, this, I was born and raised well, and it's in funny. a culture with my family, Hawaii, and all these things. And people around me spoke that way, and I spoke that way. Just because my social circumstances were one way doesn't mean that I have to change the way I talk and the way I act because I want to live a spiritual life. And I think people are looking for a reason to call you a hypocrite. And not just you. I think in general, that's the world we live in. And I think you're about as close to a representation of a yoga lifestyle that I know. And I mean, I I guess I know a few people. And I think people are always sort of looking to call you out or like, oh, you shouldn't do that. Or you call yourself a quote unquote yogi or you live the yoga lifestyle, but you shouldn't say fuck or you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. It's just... I get the sense that people are looking for a reason to call people hypocrites. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, people go, oh, tomorrow you call yourself a yogi. No, I'm just calling myself a soul yeah. that's on the path to um, trying to develop my relationship with God and trying to help others do the same and help other people evolve on a spiritual level. And that's it. I mean, at the end of the day, everything is a rental. Do you think there's a difference between spirituality and being religious? Because you do make yoga out to seem religious. Mm -hmm. 
the word religious or religion comes from the word to relink with God. And the word yoga means to unite with God. Hmm. So if you actually look at this, they kind of have the same meaning. Um, people use that word religion and they get a very negative undertone because of all the horrible shit that's been done in the name of religion. But then you look at people that transcend that mold. And you look at Gandhi, people go, oh, I like Gandhi. He's a deeply spiritual person. He lived a yoga lifestyle that would be looked at as somewhat religious. He talked about God with a capital G, but he understood it. You know, in Pantanjali's Eight Sutras, he writes um, Ishvara Pranidhana, which means Ishvara is a name that's in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, means the supreme controller. Um, it's a name that's reserved for God. And Ishvara Pranidhana means offer all of your life's actions to God. So you start looking at the Bhagavad Gita, Pantanjali's Eight Sutras, and yeah, they're talking about a God with a capital G. You read the Srimad Bhagavatam, it's a vast, very large writing. Um, they talk about God with a capital G. We could go down a whole rabbit hole with this. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. I mean, I was just curious, because there is sort of um, an intensity and a religious intensity, um, or at least a religious connotation towards your discussion and description mm -hmm. of yoga in your life. Yeah. I mean, I think this is what people need to know is that... Uh, Yoga talks about being there being a supreme god, but they also say there's an amazing writing in the Srimad Bhagavatam by a person named Kapila where he says, by this process, and he's referring to yoga, by this process or any other true process, one can come to know God. Um, so that shows you that it's still non-denomination, non-sectarian, because he's saying by this process of yoga or any other true process. He's not just saying yoga is the only way to, you know, to develop your connection with God, but there's other ways as long as it's a true path. You know the you know um, Plato's allegory of a cave, right? Mm -hmm. So there's these guys. It's an allegory. So everyone's these guys have been chained to a wall their entire life, chained facing this one wall. They've never been outside. They've never seen anything but shadows that are cascaded off of a fire that's burning behind them. So they're facing this wall, they're chained, and all they're seeing is like shadows of people walking by, shadows of wolves, shadows of everything. That's all they've ever seen. They've lived their life in a cave. One day, one of the guys gets out of his shackles, and he runs outside, he crawls through this hole, and as he comes outside, it's daylight. It's the first time he's been in daylight. His eyes can't hurt. All he sees is white, and it takes a moment for his eyes to adjust, and all of a sudden... When they adjust, he sees trees, he sees people, he sees wolves, he sees the actual things he's only seen the shadows of before. And rather than escaping and running, in his heart and his mind, he feels, you should go back. You should tell your friends what's actually out there. You should try to free them. Hmm. So he crawls back in. He tells his friends, you guys, we need to go out there. Everything that we've ever seen, they're just shadows. They're reflections off of a fire of actual people and animals. And he goes in descriptions of everything. There's light. And his friends get angry. They say, you're lying. Stop making up stories. They get so frustrated with everything that he's saying that they plot to kill him. 
It's an allegory for, you know, when people start telling you the truth here in life, in spiritual life, makes you uncomfortable, makes people frustrated. Don't say that to me. That sounds religious. I don't like that. Don't tell me about this. That makes me feel uncomfortable. The best thing we can do in our life is get uncomfortable. Do you feel like um, you have to be a certain way? Um, and I guess because we're recording the podcast, obviously this is going to be going into the public. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you ever just like, because I've been around you and you're chill and you're funny and, and, and obviously I wouldn't have taken your teacher training if I didn't think you were funny and chill. But do you feel like when you're out in the public or something's being recorded or you're teaching, you tap into something different or are you thinking about this kind of stuff pretty regularly? Because I see you with your son on Instagram, mm-hmm. and you love basketball, and you're mm-hmm. a goofball. Yeah. Um, or is this sort of underlying underneath it? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, I don't want to be trying to be a serious person 24 hours a day, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but is there sort of an expectation? Because pe- when people hear your name, you're a certain way, and then when mm-hmm. you're out there in the world... You yeah. will have to sort of behave a certain way. Well, it's like this, you know, um, like I have a 10-year-old son. We play basketball. We goof around. We do practical jokes. We have a great time. Um, but he himself, you know, even from a very early age, um, I look at him as somebody that is this amazing canvas that's just ready to soak up knowledge and wisdom and um, be this sponge for life. But that's the problem is most of our society, we were, we were a sponge, but some people put us in dirty water. Some people put us in one area and, you know, we become this sponge of all kinds of things. So, you know, even though he and I have so much fun, we do all these things, you know, he and I regularly have philosophy talks. I'll put him to bed. We'll lay in bed together and we'll just talk about the meaning of life. He has a deep understanding of reincarnation and karma, the existence of the soul. You can sit down with Kanai and have a 30-minute conversation about yoga philosophy and he'd be down. You know, I look at, like, my son. I want to prepare him for life because, you know, I won't be there for his entire journey, you know, so... We do have fun. We do all these things that are incredibly creative. And, uh, you know, you've seen our Instagram jokes that we do for the public because I kind of take Instagram not so seriously. Well, that's good, though. Yeah. I think it's important to use it um, if, you ha- if you're if you a yoga teacher, an owner, a studio owner, have a book. Yeah. But I like that you don't take it seriously. I think it's, it's an important attitude to have. Yeah, but so I'm trying to give him as many tools as he can possibly have, um, you know, and... Uh, like right before I left, we were talk, we were tackling the whole conversation of karma and the different types of karma that are out there. Most people don't know there's different types of karma, um, and he could he could explain them all to you. And your stance, how karma and your consciousness at the time of death deciphers where you go in your next life and what reincarnation means. Re means to repeat, and incarnate means into the flesh to repeat into the flesh. Basically, I try not to you know one take myself too seriously. I think it's hilarious this whole. Illusion that oh, I'm just Tamal Dodge, I'm a yoga teacher. <laughs> oh, I'm Dodge, get the book. And it's just, you know, to me, everything that is uh, coming into my life is a blessing, but it's also just an incredible avenue just to use it as a platform to help other people. I mean, my whole dream, what I'm truly trying to work towards in my life is to create a 100% um, 
donation-based, nonprofit uh, meditation center. But it's not just a meditation center. It's uh, basically a yoga university, like a meditation university. And I've started it already called Meditation Campus, where people will be able to come there and they'll learn not only how to meditate, but the reasons why and the history behind it all um, so that they can use it throughout their life. You know, the way I look at yoga, I look at it as not just this incredible physical tool or platform, but it's this um, lifestyle that you can be living all day, every day. Most people think that meditation is sitting five minutes with your eyes closed trying to stop your thoughts. When meditation means to fixate your mind and senses on something. For instance... We're meditating all day long. Some people are meditating on Instagram like we've been talking about. Some people are meditating on food. So are you thinking that I should be meditating more often on Instagram? (laughs) (laughs) Some people are meditating on sex. Yeah. Some people are meditating on the Kardashians like we talked about earlier. Some people are meditating on this. Some people are meditating on, oh my God, my body's getting older. Let me just look at my skin 10 times Hmm. in one day and change that. Isn't it more obsessing than meditating? No, it's still meditating because meditation means putting your mind and senses on something. For instance, if somebody commits a crime, they use a term. They go, oh, that crime was pre-meditated, which means they were fixating their mind and senses on it before they actually did it. It's premeditated. Okay. It's a premeditated activity. They were meditating on whatever, killing or doing on something, (laughs) on somebody. Oh, this guy's a serial killer. He's been premeditating on it. You hear it all the time. The difference between mundane, everyday meditation of thinking about sex, this thing, that thing, and spiritual meditation, literally in yoga... You read the Bhagavad Gita, you go through Pandajali's eight sutras, it's putting your mind and senses on God. Why LA? And do you feel like the. I mean, it's a two part question. I mean, how did. I forgot because I think you told the story already, but you ended up owning or creating a studio in probably the most oversaturated mm. yoga community yeah. in the United States. And. You have certainly become successful here. Did you ever, did you, was it a struggle at first? And do you get caught up in sort of the competitive nature out here? Um, But how did you end up in LA? I mean, you know, I've been in LA for a long time. How long now? Mm, Very long, God. Because you're actually 95 years old. (laughs) I don't even know. But I've been here for a very long time. And, I've been teaching yoga since I was 18 here, and wow. um, yeah, I'm 34 now, so it's a long haul, yeah. 16 years in yeah. Los Angeles. That's a thing, you know, people oh. also always think I'm a lot younger than I am because I look like I'm a kid, but... But you've probably seen LA, the yoga scene change. Oh, dra- dramatically yeah. and drastically, and I've seen, you know, how yoga was in Los Angeles before social media, before Facebook even, Yeah, which was a very different world. What I will say is... Teaching yoga in Los Angeles, it not only has evolved and it's changed over the years, but, you know, I figured if I could make an impact in, yes, the most saturated and most, you know, competitive environment, if you want to call it that, in, you know, America, if not the world, right, then I probably could, you know, try to infuse in other cities um, a little easier if I wanted to, um, because it is so saturated. I mean, I I did a Google search the other day and looked at like, 
forget, it was like a five or six mile radius of the studio I'm in right now. And there was like 20 something studios. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. To me, it's never been like, oh, why LA? It's always been like, well, why not LA? You know, everybody needs yoga and they need it, especially in a place that's considered to be, you know, the United States yoga mecca, if you yeah. want to call it that. Um, but uh, everything that I saw when I first came to Los Angeles was very just you know, bodily oriented and very physical and still is to this day. And so I kind of felt like there's a need of, well, if I ever do in a studio, I want to be able to do trainings a certain way, do meditation modules there a certain way, and do things that are going to take it a step further and more in the direction of the history, the meaning, the philosophy, and the lifestyle behind it. And that's kind of the drive of starting the Yoga Salt and starting the studios and building them the way they, the way they were. You know, unfortunately, you know, I'm blessed that, you know, I started doing this yoga studio and students responded to it in a very positive way. You know, people love it. People love being able to meditate, learning different things about yoga that they didn't learn before and applying it to their, to their own life. And when I see things like that happen, I mean... That's the bread and butter right there. That's the best. That's priceless, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's, I think that's one of the fr- frustrating things sometimes when I think of like big yoga companies that have like millions and millions of followers and they have the opportunity to actually touch on something mm. far deeper than a pair of yoga pants or some upside down posture in the kitchen or something. I think there's the opportunity to really transform people's lives and in a deeper way i mean that could be i mean yeah i think anybody who has a platform where they could make massive change they have that opportunity there doesn't mean they're definitely gonna do it (laughs) right yeah um it'd be great if they did you know but that's the thing about being an individual you know uh a jiva atma which is the soul that inhabits the body it is called an individual soul that soul has an individual will obviously that's why people's wills are not exactly like your you're like, I wish they would just be on the same page as me. Yeah. You know, they have their own free will because they're an individual soul. It's like this. When I was a kid, we used to do this spiritual play called Fish Out of Water. And I'd be this fish. I was like 10 years old. I'm like pretending I'm a fish flopping on a beach. I'm out of water. A kid would come up to me and go, fish, what's the matter? You look cold. And they'd throw a jacket on me. So now I'm a fish on a beach flopping around with a jacket on. Someone else comes up to me and goes, fish, what's the matter? You need money. So now I'm a fish with a jacket and a job on Wall Street. Next, somebody comes up to me and goes, fish, what's the matter? You need love. So now I'm a flopping fish with a jacket, a job on Wall Street, and a girlfriend. And through the whole story, this whole play, I get more and more shit, more and more stuff. And it's not until the end of the play that somebody goes, fish. You need water. And they throw me back in the ocean. And then I'm happy. I'm complete. It's a allegory for us. You know, we may build up the biggest Instagram. It's not fulfilling us. We may get five cars. We get 10 cars. We get go move to Costa Rica and buy a villa on the hill. We get this thing, that thing. We get married. We have all the things we ever wanted, but it's just not fulfilling us. And yoga says... It's because you're a spiritual being having a material experience, so you're mistaking material things as going to be the source of happiness. It's not until you realize, aham brahmasmi, I am spirit. And a spiritual being, the only thing that's going to make me happy is spiritual things. And, you know, it would be 
incredible if people could share that and stand on some kind of platform, get on a pulpit and be like, you know what? Guess what? This is how to really help you guys. And I have all these Instagram followers and I'm going to use it for the greater good of mankind and such. But, you know, that's uh, wishful thinking. Yeah. You know? Why did you end up opening up the spot in Wilmington? North? It's Wilmington, right? Mm-hmm. And, and how'd you end up picking Wil- Wilmington and how's it going over there? Because it's so interesting to me that you have this space in L.A. and you open one clear on the other side of the in country. In a town that most people haven't heard of. Yeah. yeah, which maybe is a genius idea because I'm sure there's not a lot of yoga studios there. No, there's a lot of yoga studios. Oh, there, there. are. Okay. Yeah. So tell me about that. Well, mine's, uh, I uh, opened mine in a small trailer. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's uh, it's actually a beautiful space. Um, yeah, I'm I've been sure. going to Wilmington, North Carolina for the last 12 years, teaching trainings and workshops, well, as why? well as Raleigh and Charlotte. Well, how, why would, how did your connection with that part of the country even start? Years ago, there used to be a magazine called Yogi Times. It was a free yoga magazine that was really popular. And they did a feature on me. And uh, right after the feature came out, it was like a magazine that was distributed across to like all the yoga studios in America and people that wanted them. All of a sudden, I started getting phone calls all over the place. Um, I was probably 24 years old. Long hair? There. Yeah, 22, what, 22 yeah. or 24, somewhere around there. I think there. I saw that, yeah. One of the places that called me it was a studio called Blue Lotus in Raleigh. They invited me out. There was another studio in Wilmington invited me out. Another studio in Charlotte called God of Yoga invited me out. And I just... Did like a little tour of North Carolina. And at that time, I'd gone to Arizona and all these other places because people kept calling me to do workshops. And Like what kind of workshops? Uh, so I'd come in and I'd do, they varied depending on what they wanted. Some were uh, what they call, I called enhance your practice, which were a two-hour flow class, philosophy, detailed okay. alignment. It was like an experience. Okay. And other ones that I'd do were full on like, oh, we're going to work on back bends and it was going to be workshop like a teacher training and things like that. Right. So I went out to North Carolina. I'd been going to all these different states. I mean, I went to Minnesota. I went to Wisconsin, to Appleton, Wisconsin, and Madison, Wisconsin in the dead of winter. And I was teaching workshops everywhere. Okay. Um, I was doing all these workshops and stuff, but I went to Wilmington and I was like, wow, this town's awesome. It's like really cool beach town. It's really clean. It's really beautiful. Uh, it's kind of like a cleaner uh, version of Manhattan Beach. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And um, very surfery, very beachy, very cool, very fitness oriented. I was like, wow, I could see myself living here one day. That was 12 years ago. Then every year for 12 years, I was invited out to do trainings and workshops all through North Carolina. And I'd always go to Wilmington and I always loved it. So always floating in the back of my head. And I had brought my wife there before. She loved it. She was like, God, I could totally live here. About two years ago, um, I started really thinking about where I wanted to open up another studio. And I was thinking places in L.A. I was looking at different spots in L.A. It's expensive to do things in L.A., but that wasn't the reason. Um, I started just thinking about where I really wanted to raise my 10-year-old son. And he was getting older, and I don't want him to go through his teens in a place that is... Um, as chaotic as Los Angeles. Plus, he was. I felt like he's not getting the kind of childhood I wished he would be able to have. It's not safe. It's dangerous. He, he already saw stuff at a very young age that he shouldn't have. He saw me chase a guy out of our garage who had broken in. 
Um, he saw me get attacked by a guy in methamphetamines at a park. Um, he saw me have to fight people. Yeah. You know, and trust me, I'm not, I'm not promoting violence whatsoever. I'm just saying, you know, I've been in situations where I literally was just a guy on meth came behind me and punched me in the back of the head out of nowhere just because he thought he could read my mind. Yeah. So that kind of stuff happens. And, you know, I, you have to defend yourself. Yeah. Um, so he saw a lot of crazy stuff and I'm like, well, these are not great things for a child to see. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so when I was looking at other places to open up a studio, I, I said to my wife, I was like, what about Wilmington, North Carolina? She's like, great idea. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. My wife's a very decisive person, <laughs> a serious, seriously decisive person. I mean, people don't realize like what it's taken to do the things that I've had to do here in Los Angeles. I'll share some funny things that people will be shocked about. So I was teaching in L.A. at a very young age, taught everywhere, yoga works, Power Yoga Santa Monica, Brian Kest, right. Maha Yoga, which is not there anymore, Yoga Hop, you name it. There was actually an article that was put out about me. It was called The Guy Who Teaches at All the Yoga Studios in Los Angeles. Right. I was like 21, and I was hungry, so I literally taught anywhere and everywhere. There was a point where I was teaching close to 25 classes a week. And, um, you know, as that went on, I ended up having a yoga studio with partners that didn't work out. And after that all went away, I was really in debt, really broke, you know, uh, had my son and my wife, my, my stepdaughter and trying to figure out how to support everybody and what I should do. And I was in this really weird influx stage where I, I didn't know what my next move was. I always had like a next move, um, but I was like, God, what do I do? So one day, um, I went with one of my really good friends who I do jiu-jitsu with. He's a chiropractor. His name's Dr. Adam sure, Sands. Sure, Dr. Yeah. Sands. Shout out to Adam Sands, yeah. best chiropractor. Yeah, he's fantastic. And I was so anti, I don't want you to lose your train of thought, but no. I was so anti-chiropractors. Yeah. And you turned me on to him, and he's like saved my neck. Seriously, He's right? the real deal. He's the real deal. A shout out to Adam Sands. Yeah. Dr. Adam Sands Go see Marina him. Del yes. Rey. Check him out. It's totally. amazing. Yeah. So anyway, you know. <laughs> Sorry. He's uh he's really good at jiu-jitsu, and I've been doing jiu-jitsu with him for many years. And he's like, hey, man, come on to this office and get adjusted by me. And he was at this little office um, below, uh, it was a two-story building. So he was in the bottom floor of this two-story building on Lincoln Boulevard. And I went there to get adjusted, and I'm just in this influx place. And the guy who owned the building was like, hey, man, you're the yoga guy, right? And I got introduced to the guy who owned the building, and he's like, let me show you something. So I went upstairs. He's like, there's windows back over here. And he tears down all these boxes and there's windows. And he's like, you want to open up a yoga studio in here? And I'm like, no, this is nasty as hell. He's like, no, man, listen, I'll give you a great deal. I'll even put in the wood floors. I'll get the place painted. You just need to take care of this, this, and this, and hire your teachers and stuff. And you could do it. But he was going to give me a really good deal. I'm like, I don't know, man, sorry. And I, I left. And then that night, I was sitting around and my wife's like, what's, what's going on, man? What are, you, what are you thinking about? I'm like, this guy showed me this building, said he wanted me to open a studio there at this price. I, we have no money, though. <sighs> he said he'd put in the wood floors and do all this you know, tenant improvement work for me. And she goes, let me go see it. So we went and looked at it. And I was like, God, she's really not going to like it. There's piles of cat shit and everything. <laughs> she walks in and she's like, this place is great. You should do it, man. Look, there's lights back here. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, really? She's like, do it. She's very decisive. And I start going, what? Let me try to find a name. 
I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, what, do we, what is yoga? What do we get from yoga? Okay, well, when we do the physical yoga practice, we sweat. What is in the sweat? We sweat salt. It's salty. Uh, we need electrolytes from salt. Gandhi said yoga is the salt of the earth and that man needs salt as he needs food and water. That's what Gandhi said. So um, I typed in yoga salt. It was there. So I purchased it. I called the guy and I go, hey, man, okay, let's do this thing. He goes, okay, great. The only catch is is... If you're really going to do this with me, you have to open up in a month. So I said, okay, shit, let's do it. And I'm like, honey, what do we do? He wants to do it in a month. We have no money. She goes, I don't know. Let's look at what we can do. So my wife's father, when she was 18 years old, purchased a $25,000 life insurance policy for her. So I took all the cash out of her life insurance policy and put all $25,000 into Yoga Salt hired all my teachers and staff in a month, built the place out in a month and opened and it exploded. Yeah. And we ended up having to move out of that building because the owner was changing things around and we upgraded and moved into a bigger building up on Washington Boulevard, sure. which is the one you've been to now. But it started from that. Last couple things, and because um, I know you've got to talk to, um, you've got like you're on a media tour right now. Um, I am curious about jujitsu. Yeah, and just because I'm curious, I mean, yoga to me is really promoting peace, mm-hmm. serenity, balance, and then I'm I'm I know I'm sure I don't practice jujitsu, but I'm sure at first. It seems extremely violent. Well, you well you want yeah. to at first, I'm sure, find peace and harmony, mm-hmm. but then maybe at a last resort, you're ultimately going to have to defend yourself. So, was there something that happened as a kid, or how did you get interested in it? And were you in violent situations? Because I was even listening to Joe Rogan the other day, where he said something to the fact like everybody needs to know how to fight. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's a last resort. Mm-hmm. So, sort of tell me about that, and and how did you get into it? Were you in a situation where you felt like, you know, I need to yeah. uh, defend myself? 100%. So, well, I'll backtrack. When I was a kid in like 91, 92, um, maybe it was a little later. Maybe, yeah, probably around 91, 92. And this is in Hawaii? Uh, no, this was the Los Angeles. Oh, okay. My dad used to bounce back and forth. Okay. And he was an actor, as some of people know who know yeah. me. Um, that's one of the ways he kept the ashram and our family supported he was like the star of General Hospital in the 80s and with the bad <laughs> guy on like Miami Vice and all the 80s shows. One of these guys that came into our ashram, he was doing jiu-jitsu. And, you know, in ashram, you have like all walks of life. Everybody thinks an ashram is one way or that. Ashram is a center for learning spiritual traditions and spiritual wisdom and seeing if you can apply it to your life. But, for instance, when my dad moved into an ashram when he was 15, somebody came up to his spiritual teacher and said, hey, how come everybody here is so fucked up? Yeah, And the spiritual teacher said, you know, that's like going into a hospital and saying, why is everybody sick? At least they know they're sick and they're here. Yeah. So, you know, we had all walks of life. So this guy did jiu-jitsu. And I remember him, you know, grappling with some of my older brothers because I'm one of the youngest. And grappling with other people and other martial artists that came into the ashram. And he was like always whooping ass. Um, And I was always like, wow, that's really interesting. Never did it. Never went to one class. My, some of my brothers went as a white belt, but they never went past white belt. If anybody knows anything about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it's got the 
largest dropout rate of any martial art in the entire world, that less than 1% of anybody that starts jujitsu will ever actually get a black belt. Yeah. It's like harder than the Navy SEALs, apparently. Fast forward, I'm 23, about 23, maybe 24. My son's about six months old. Um, My wife and I are out at dinner. My son's at home with a babysitter, and my stepdaughter's there. We come home around 10 o'clock at night, and as we're pulling up, the lights of my car just go across the front of my lawn, and I see a guy on the side of my house staring in the window. I'm like, what? Yeah. And then as I pull fully into the driveway, there's another guy on the other side of the house staring in my window, which I want to ask all the yoga people out there, what would you do? Yeah. That's everyone's worst nightmare. I have a six-month-old baby and two, yeah. two girls in there right now. That's it. It's very scary. You know, and my daughter was really young at the time. And, she, you know, and um, so my heart drops. I freak out. I tell my wife, call the cops. I jump out of the car and I don't know anything. I don't know karate. I don't okay. know jiu-jitsu. I know crazy. Right. So I come out there. I'm like, ah, you guys, I see you. Get the fuck out. I'll kill you. Because yeah. I'm like in full fight or flight. Like these guys are literally... In my backyard, staring on both sides of the house through the windows. Yeah. One guy just bolts, takes off running. The other guy is running, but I'm in his pathway. And he's like, oh, it's okay, man. I'm like, no, 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 it's not okay, dude. This is my house. And he's like, no, no. And then he like faints to go one way and he runs the other way. And he bolts following his friend. And I'm like, what the hell? And I see them go a couple houses down and they jump into my neighbor's yard. Yeah. And that neighbor we're friends with and they have children. And I'm like, oh my God. And I knock my car window. I go, honey, give me the phone. She's like, 9-1 was there. I go, yes. I go, these guys literally just jumped into our neighbor's yard. So I run over there. I go, I see you in there. I'm calling the cops. So they jump over the fence and they run out onto Washington Boulevard. And they're bolting. And I'm talking to the dispatch. And they're like, where are they? I, go, I don't know. They just went onto Washington. Can you get a visual? I'm like, I'll have to follow them. Yeah. She's like, well, can you stay at a safe distance? I'm like, really? Oh, so I'm at a safe distance, but I'm jogging. And those guys see me chasing them. I'm chasing these guys, and you see like a line of cop cars with their lights, headlights, everything off. And as they get close, they light it up. They grab the two guys, they pin them down. One guy's drunk, the other guy's on a narcotic. Um, one guy had a knife in his pocket, but it was under the the it was under the limit of how long the blade should be. Okay. Um, one guy had a criminal record. Make a long story short, they were never charged with a felony. It was a misdemeanor. They got a ticket because it was prowling. <laughs> and I asked one of my really good friends uh, who had done my teacher training before, who was in the police department. I said, hey, you know, what the hell? Yeah. He's like, I know. The system's messed up. I go, dude, if I didn't show up like even 20, 15, 20 minutes later, what the hell would have happened? He goes, God only knows. He goes, do you know how to do anything? I go, I go, I only know crazy. Yeah. You know, it's very well known that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is known as the most practical form of self-defense or martial arts. And so I was suggested by him and a bunch of other friends that were in the police department and I had friends who had been in the military before. They, you got to do Jiu-Jitsu. It's the most practical form of self-defense. So walked in and I got hooked, man. Yeah. And long story short, you know, I got my black belt um, just in May of this year. So, wow. And I got so hooked, I, <laughs> I, yeah. went, I went all the way. Um, it was also one of those things where it was, uh, it was one of those things that made me very uncomfortable. 
when you go into a jiu-jitsu class, you learn some techniques. You, you do a warm-up, you learn some techniques. This is a typical class. It's not everywhere. You do warm-ups, you jog around, you do these movement attributes, you learn what a hip escape is, you know, do front rolls, back rolls, and certain attribute development techniques. And then you do some drilling, like how to do an arm bar, how to do a triangle, how to position people, how to pass a guard, what is guard, how to use your guard, a whole wide variety of things. And then uh, you do something called rolling, where you slap hands, you bump fists with somebody, they set a timer, usually five minutes, and the person is going to attack you with full strength and power and fight you with everything but punches, depending on the school. And I also do things where people are allowed to like hit me and stuff too now. But they're allowed to attack you full force. And you don't do that once. You usually do that for about 30 minutes. So you rotate a lot and you yeah. go with somebody different. And everyone's going to be different sizes. One guy will be like 150 pounds. The next guy's going to be 250 pounds. And that's why it has such a dropout rate is because it makes people deeply uncomfortable. Nobody wants a 250-pound man mounted on top of them trying to strangle them to death. Right. Um, and you're not going to get strangled to death. You've got to tap. If you're getting choked out or whatever, you've got to tap. And then you reset. Um, but nobody wants to do it. I don't want to reset. They go, oh, dude, I had enough. I'm done. Peace. Um, so it made me really uncomfortable. And that was one of the things that attracted me. I was like, okay, it makes me very uncomfortable. Well, let's do it again. Let's get, let's start making it so I get comfortable here. That experience of seeing those guys on the side of my house, I'm, there's certain people you can reason with, and there's people who are unreasonable. Yeah, um, you could try to say, oh, I could have talked this. Or that. I'm like, go down to Rose Avenue and talk to somebody on methamphetamines and see if you can completely re- reason with them. You can do something. You can try to get away from them. Yeah, that's the first option. If you're not reasoning, can you get away? I don't want to fight anybody. I'm not looking for trouble at all. I'm going to avoid trouble at all costs. I want to walk through this world with peace and grace. But then there's going to be that uncomfortable circumstance that happens to most people. You know, the statistic is, I think, for females, one in four will be in a violent altercation. One in four. Hmm. Where you're going to be in an uncomfortable circumstance where not only is the person unreasonable, but you can't escape. There's yeah. nowhere to go. So what do you do then? You can't reason. They're going to harm you, and you can't escape. And that's the time when you wish you had some jujitsu. Yeah. That's the time when you knew how to. And when I teach self-defense stuff, like I teach a lot of jujitsu classes. My teacher, Tahi Burns here in Los Angeles, has an amazing school called PKG. He teaches people practical stuff. He's not teaching. He's not going to teach you to, oh, so you have a big, strong guy mounted on top of you. I want you to not only get him off of you, but now fight him. No, he's going to teach you to get the person off and escape and get the hell out of there. Yeah. You know, teaches you also how to avoid situations before they get bad, to see danger before it starts to go south. Um, giving you street smart, streets awareness, things that you wouldn't notice before. Um, I'm, I'm firmly believe that, you know, we want to be peaceful in this world. And that's what it's all about. You know, that's the other thing about Jiu-Jitsu that's so amazing is people understand the control that you're given, you know, I'm not, I'm not big. I'm 125 pounds, but you know, I can hold down a 250 pound muscle head. No problem without even having to hurt him. I just pin him to the ground, wait for the cops. I don't even have to inflict pain on the person. When you learn a certain amount of technique, you can choose to do what you need to do. Jiu-Jitsu means the gentle art. Okay. It couldn't be more of a yoga martial art. If you think about it, you want to know why? Because you can choose to inflict harm or not inflict harm. You have so much control. I can, 
take someone to the floor, put them on the ground, and I can just hug them very tightly from the side, and they won't be able to move. Have you had to use this in the, since since learning? Yeah, um, you have. So wow. Um, this my I was at a park playing basketball. My son, I just picked him up from school, right here in West LA. <laughs> okay, you know. And I'm at this park. It's probably three in the afternoon. Tons of families, everyone with their kids. And my son was probably seven. He's pretty young. Okay. Um, so I'm at this park. Causing trouble. Yeah. We're playing <laughs> basketball. And in the back, when I first got to the park, I saw this dude walking around who's clearly like out of it. Yeah. This big dude. 200 something pounds. But I was like, whatever. There's always a crazy dude yeah. at a park everywhere in LA. Sure. Um, so I just blocked him out. He was far off. I'm shooting basketball with my son. Next thing I know, I feel like I was just hit with a a baseball bat in the back of my head and I saw white. I was like whack as hard as I could. And I just literally was going unconscious. And then I had another whack on the side of my face and it fractured the side of my jaw. And I'm like, what is happening right now? And I fall onto my, onto the ground and I go onto my back and I see it's that crazy dude. And he just starts throwing bombs at me. Yeah. So I'm like, Barely can see because I'm just seeing stars everywhere. I, literally, I got hit in the back of the head. I was going unconscious. And then when he hit me in the jaw, it brought me back to consciousness. Wow. It was weird. Like, ba-ba. And as I fall on my back, I'm like, oh, my God. It's that crazy dude I saw when I walked in. So I start doing what they, you probably see it in like the early Gracie Jiu-Jitsu videos. I started doing shin kicks on the guy. And then I got to my feet and did a technical stand-up. It's called in Jiu-Jitsu. Right. And I was like stumbling around <laughs> like a drunk person because I'm almost unconscious. Yeah. I'm going, come on let's go come on and the guy just took off running he just bolted and then i started i made a mistake because i was so full of like furious i was just furious i just got punched in the head twice and you know it's that sucker punch cold cock thing that just nothing more irritating yeah so i'm chasing this guy but my son's with me i'm so angry i'm forgetting that he's with me he's screaming and crying I chase this guy all the way out onto Washington. It's always on Washington. Yeah, what the hell is up with Washington? Stay away from Washington. Yeah, but your studio's on Washington. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so I chase this guy out there, and as I'm coming out on Washington, the cops are already there. Yeah. The cops pull out their guns. They're kind of confused in who's who. They heard there was an altercation at the park, and the cops had their guns, and I'm like, whoa, I'm like, it's this dude. I mean, come on. And then all the parents came up, and I didn't even know what happened. I just knew I got hit twice. One of the dads comes up, and he's like, oh my God. He's like, dude, this dad was literally, because I was just about to shoot a basket. I'm at the free throw line. I'm shooting a basket. And he goes, he goes, yeah, the dad's going to shoot a free throw. And that guy comes running up behind him, wound up a punch. This dad didn't even see it. He was whacking him in the back of the head and then he threw another one as he's going down and hit him in the jaw. And I was like, oh, great. Could have somebody just yelled, hey, that guy's running towards you. <laughs> I know, <laughs> like, right? I was like, anybody give me a warning? Last question, then I'll let you go. Um, just really quickly, what does it mean to grow up? Is it on or in an ashram? In. In. Because I, okay, so what yeah. does that mean? Yeah, so people have this, you know, kind of romantic idea of what a yoga studio is, you know. They think it's not a yoga studio. An, an ashram. ashram. Yeah. yeah. They have this romantic idea of what a, an ashram is. It's, um, they think of like a monastery, like an Ace Ventura part two where it's like right. on a hilltop it doesn't have to be that way it just means a center for learning about spiritual philosophy meditation so it was my upbringing was wherever my family lived it was a center for spiritual learning and we'd always my father would have like a house 
get out the garage and the guest house and turn it into like a dorm. And there'd be 20, 30 people living with us at a time. People from all over the world, Europe, Australia, India, um, Asia, uh, different parts of the US. And people would live there for free if they wanted to. They could donate if they wanted or not. My dad firmly believed in just helping people um, and guiding people on their spiritual journey. And that was his passion. I mean, he would support seven kids and all these strangers and he'd go broke, do all these acting jobs, make enough money to do it again, but he wouldn't change it for the world. His love for God that's burdened to loving other people, you know, it's yeah. really is biblical. It's like love God with all your heart, all your mind, your entire being. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as thyself. I mean, he really truly loved people. He loved everybody. We It was very common for people who came in the ashram to say, God, I just feel this unconditional love from your dad. You know, growing up in a yoga ashram, we'd wake up, everyone would get together, we'd have um, philosophy talk, we'd do kirtans, uh, japa meditation. Kids would do school. We're all homeschooled, total hippies. Yeah. Um, uh, people who were in the ashram could go work a job or stay at the property. Uh, in the evening time, we'd get together again, start it all over, and we'd do you know, yoga, yoga philosophy, meditation, kirtan. Uh, my dad was so into having people have um, experiential knowledge. Not My dad used to say, you don't want to be an armchair philosopher. An armchair philosopher is somebody who sits around, you know, like Cafe Gratitude. And yeah. Said, yeah, man, I read this. I read the Tao. I read this, that. I read the Bible. I read this thing. And they, they're just philosophizing but never applying. Hmm. It's like, you know, uh, Frank Jackson's Mary's Room? No. So it's another allegory or another metaphor. <laughs> allegory alert. Yeah. Yeah. So... There's this woman, Mary. She is an expert on color. She knows exactly how the brain registers color. She has read every book there is to know about color in the brain. Mm -hmm. But she herself has only lived in a black and white room with black and white books her entire life. She has never seen color. One day, Mary is on her computer. It's a black and white one. Right. There's a glitch on the screen and a red apple appears. Does Mary's knowledge of color stay the same or does it increase now that she's actually seen color and experienced it? I would say it, it increases. Yeah, right. Because, like, what if you're a little kid and you say, Mom, what's being in love like? And they tell you what being in love is like. And then you're a teenager and you fall in love for the first time as you're in understanding of love changed probably yeah you're a kid so. you're a kid and you're like mom what's it like falling in love and they're like oh it's like this like this and then you're a teenager and you fall head over heels and you're like holy shit yeah i mean your perspective is going to continually change and evolve yeah exactly but the first experiences of something right changes your understanding or for instance you ask somebody like what does ice cream taste like oh it's creamier this this then you're like okay i imagine that but then you eat ice cream does your understanding what ice cream change yeah yeah it's like experiential knowledge changes our deep understanding of what's in yoga. We can philosophize about Pantajali's Eight Sutras and what's in the Bhagavad Gita, but if we're not applying it, we're never really going to know what it's all about. For instance, you could read books all day long on surfing. You could read books on surfing for 30 years. <laughs> yeah. And if I give you a 5 foot 10 shortboard, and you've read everything there is. You know what a cutback is. You know what a snap, a gork and flip. You know how to duck dive by reading books. 
how many people do you think after reading 30 years of books, they get in the ocean for the first time, will they be able to stand up on that five foot 10 surfboard and shred? Zero percent. Yes. Yeah. If you've ever tried surfing, you're going to go, there's no freaking way because you need all that experiential knowledge to be able to do it. Right. Same thing with yoga philosophy. My dad was so built on creating this environment where people were not only hearing but applying. I mean, like if people know what a kirtan is, there was one time when my dad had everyone do a 24-hour kirtan, which chanted for 24 hours. So you can actually see what it's about. Yeah. That's what an ashram is like. Wow. Do you play guitar? I do. Do you want to end the podcast playing a song? No, I can do a little chant for you. I've never had anybody sing a song in the studio before, like on the podcast. Well, let me just uh, thank you and talk about you really fast and see if this this will, and we'll say goodbye. And maybe because I was a little older, um, I got into yoga because I was really sick. And I got into Iyengar, and my teacher taught me about meditation. And it became life or death for me. And because I was in my early 20s, I didn't want to move back home to Ohio. I wanted to figure out how to take care of myself. And I started going to therapy. And my therapist suggested I go to an Iyengar yoga teacher. And she introduced all, all the restorative postures and being upside down and inversions, but not like handstand inversions, but like uh, Satubanda and elevating the heart over the head. And it really changed my life. And I got off all of my medication. And I'm sure it can be attributed to not just yoga, lifestyle, eating well, going to therapy a couple times a week because I was diagnosed with a terrible autoimmune condition as a kid and it came back in my 20s. And I found health again. And I stopped doing yoga for a while and went, went to swimming or started swimming every day. And that sort of became my fix. And then I tweaked my neck and I couldn't swim because swimming is so extensively, um, your shoulders and neck can really take a lot of the brunt when it comes to swimming, especially if you're doing it every day. So I got into yoga and I became really passionate about yoga again. And, but it was more about vinyasa based styles of yoga. And I loved it about two years before I met you, people were telling me, you know, you should be a teacher. And yeah, yoga works, and this isn't like an anti-yoga works thing. I knew they had teacher trainings going on, but then my friend Matt said, you know, you got to try Tamal's class. And I went to your class, and there was just this essence, this energy about you, and I love that you sang a song at the end, and I love that it wasn't... Clearly, you have a knowledge about the human body and the anatomy and creating a strong flow class and creating an energy where people are obviously going to get physical strength, which I think is clearly very important. Obviously you practice jujitsu and you need to be strong, Uh, especially in this world we live in today. It helps to be strong, but I was really in awe and really respected your knowledge of, or at least your attentiveness towards the spiritual aspects of the practice. And I think that can be lost so often these days. And I think it's just as valuable, if not more valuable than ever before. And I am so glad that Matt introduced me to your class because it was an inspiring 
teacher training. I, I now teach yoga. I've been teaching for like three, four years, and I feel like I'm better every day. And I take a responsibility for it because people come to me and I can tell they look up to me, not as some sort of godlike figure, but I provide them a space for an hour where they feel better. And I mean, I don't read passages from old texts. I'm not, I'm a different yoga teacher than you are, but I do have the essence of you, I believe, when I teach. And that's really um, getting a little emotional, but I just, I appreciate that. Yeah. And I think, um, before I let you go, I think we can forget about that sort of passing down and it makes sort of sense when you think of kids passing down certain traits of their genetics to their kids and in lessons that you learn. And, you know, I'll never forget that teacher training. Um, I'm forever grateful for it. It was inspiring as hell. And obviously, because here I am still teaching and I love it. It's, it's such a great addition to my life. So I'm really thankful that I met you and took your training. I'm so appreciative that you took the time to talk to me today. You've been a huge inspiration for me. That was my pleasure. Yeah. I mean, I really, I sincerely mean it. It was, it's, it was a life changing experience. I'll never forget it. And so I think I'm sure you have many intentions when you teach a class and have a teacher training, but I can tell you through my experience that you transformed me and made me appreciate the practice more. And I take a strong, I feel a sense of responsibility when I teach that it's not about me. I mean, I could bore people with so many things that I'm not going to do, but it is about creating a space where people think a little deeper than the superficial world that we live in. So um, I appreciate you taking the time. We're going to see how this works. You singing a song to end the show. Again, the book is called... The Yoga Plate. The Yoga Plate. It'll be available. You can pre-order now on Barnes & Noble, Amazon. You're actually having a party, I think, on the 21st. Yeah, 21st. Because this will publish before that. Yeah. No, Where? it's actually going to publish September 24th. It hits everywhere. And then we're having a launch party September 21st at Yoga Salt. Great. So Tamal Dodge, he can be found Yoga Salt uh, for now, I guess, in Wilmington. And I appreciate you taking the time. We're going to hopefully end the show with the song. Thanks again. Thank you. Yeah. Krishna para kamola devi Jaya Jaya namo namo Namaste Saraswati devam Ingoravani prachayanai Nirvasesha sunyavadi Vaskachardesitarani Nama Om Vishnu
Vedaya Krishna Prestaya Mbutalei Srimate Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Dinamalei Namo Bhakti Venodaya Sachidananda Namalei Ingoda Shakti Swarupaya Rupanuga Varayate Vaja Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nichananda Shri Advaita Engadadara Shri Vasadegora Bhaktavrindam 